So as it turns out, we've had, this is a series about the Bible, and we've done a ton of research, and we've determined that pineapple was, in fact, the fruit in the Garden of Eden, which was, and it didn't say forbidden to eat, it said forbidden to put on pizza. So I'm following the Word of God. I don't know what the rest of you are doing. Uh, I guess informally here, anyone that likes pineapple on pizza, go ahead and give us a, a hand raise here, and we can get a vote. Oh, I don't know. It, it's, I think, the, I think the, it's closer than the first service. The first service, it was pretty bad. It was, it was, there might have been five holdouts with me and the rest of us were. <clears throat> um, but I do, uh, I am I'm privileged to be here. Thank you very much for, uh, for I guess, JR asked me to, to speak. Now, JR and Janie are in Spokane this weekend, and they're uh, at a sister church there and ministering. In fact, I think JR is ministering probably right now. And um, there, I think all of you probably know, or if most of you have heard, that we are part of an uh, association of churches called Regions Beyond, and we are um, not really like a formal membership, but we are associated with other churches who, and their leaders who are uh, throughout the world, and, and several in the United States, and and we are basically f- sharing the the mindset of number one the the. The, our approach to Scripture, our approach to living a life uh, with the Holy Spirit, and also particularly our focus on raising leaders, spreading the gospel, helping support churches and missions around the world, and trying to multiply, multiply and proliferate um, churches and, and then support those leaders. And some of them, a lot of them actually are in, are in very difficult, uh, poor countries. Uh, countries. There are some countries where there's some oppression against the Christian church, or it's not, at least not open to the Christian church. And uh, I think in, in a month or so, JR is actually going to go to a gathering in South Africa. And one of the things that we are well aware of is that we are helping a lot of uh, fellow leaders in, in this labor around the world financially. We've been doing some things financially. We've been doing some trips. Uh, Owen and Becky recently led a trip to South Africa to assist uh, with some ministry efforts there. But the other thing is we are seeing a lot of times gatherings of leaders, and this one in South Africa in particular will be one, where leaders from all over the world are going to come, come there and be together. And then one of the things that's been on my mind is the fact that some of these folks are living in very difficult situations, right? We, I don't know if you've been watching the news lately, but for example, the war in Syria is just getting worse and worse. I mean, it's it's just getting worse and worse, and there's millions of people stuck in misery and, and terror right now in, in that arena. Then we also have, I think, some concerns about this, what may be a growing uh, worldwide um, virus or pandemic that could be, that could be, we could be on the front end of it. So one of the things that I would like to do before we get into the scripture is I just want to pray briefly for these leaders and protect and ask for God's protection on them because they are... Um, a lot of them are working in a field where they are, in fact, exposed to some danger. So if you just bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the leadership of, and the sacrifice of, of uh, <clears throat> Ray Lowe and, and, uh, and Steve and Paul and many of the others that uh, we are um, 
we're close with or that we are developing closeness with. Thank you so much for their leadership in raising up other disciples and other pastors and teachers. And we thank you so much for their willingness to travel the world, to sacrifice time from their families, and also to to, um, share in some of the hardships. We know of many of these churches that are in difficult um, spiritual or governmental environments where uh, they're not open to your gospel and they're dealing with some difficulties and oppression. And so I just ask, Lord, for these leaders, in both that are in these hard times as well as those who are traveling, that you would protect them from whether it's a, a disease or physical danger, whether it's spiritual oppression, because we know they battle with that, and whether it's a governmental uh, closed uh, close societies, that you would open those doors. We also pray for our, our uh, folks locally that we know, that you know, J.R., uh, Brian, others in this body who are traveling or who will be traveling, and we've got folks going to the Philippines this year. God, we just ask that you would protect them as well in their travels, sustain them, strengthen them, and protect them from um, the maybe harassment of, I mean, even something as simple as dealing with corrupt customs officials trying to get your luggage. I mean, those, those things happen. In all those things, God, we ask for your grace on them and your protection for them and their families. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I'm going to focus, you can see my title up there, uh, on a continuation of a series that we've been doing for some time now. And it's really about the fundamental importance of the Bible in our life, in our, as Christians, in our, in, in our belief system as, as this church. And specifically, the thing that we've been doing up to this point, we've covered a lot of ground, really, about the Bible. Uh, you know, J.R. talked quite a bit about uh, how we got the Bible. Today, today the, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament as the books that we have, <clears throat> the process of interpreting the Bible, um, having a worldview and a foundation of, of our belief based upon the doctrine of the Bible. Is the Bible true? All these things. So I'm going to continue on that a little bit. And what I want to do is I want to focus today on what the reason why this is so important to us. And the reason it's so important to us is because we don't want this Bible to be just seen as an academic exercise, okay? I mean, the Bible is the, the great, just from a, take a non-spiritual point of view, just from a point of view of objectively looking at this from uh, a historian or a literature point of view. This is the greatest collection of uh, ancient literature in, in the history of the world, by far. I mean, the, it's written by so many different authors over so many different years, but the, you, have, you have excellent history, you have drama, you have poetry, you have um, then great teachings, you have great insight into the human condition. So if you are not a believer, this Bible is still worthy of study. In fact, there's people who spend their whole careers. I know some people who've spent their whole careers studying this Bible. They have PhDs, they teach, and yet they don't believe, they don't actually believe in God. They, they, they see this as a masterpiece of human literature, not as the word of God to his people whom he loves. So we don't want this to be for us, even though we're studying it uh, in a little more depth and a little more duration than we ordinarily focus on a particular Topic. We don't want this to be just an academic exercise for us. We want to get to that next thing, which is so important to me, which is knowing God. That's what it's all about, really. This Bible is a guidebook from God, a letter from Him to His people for us to know Him. And 
for us to open our hearts for him to know us. That's what this is about. So the Bible is really a, a, a instruction manual or a beginning point for a pathway of seeking God your whole life and knowing him. So let's go into a little bit of framework of kind of remembering, let's remind ourselves of where we were with the, the timeline of Jesus and his life and the ministry of the New Testament. Jesus ministered in Israel. He was a Jew who came and was born in, born in Israel and was, his ministry was primarily to the Jewish people. And he lived and taught in a time when the scripture was available to the people of Israel. The scripture being not the New Testament, but, but all of the Old Testament, which had been written and had been completed and compiled before, before Christ came on the scene. And he was often speaking to people who were experts in the scripture. And time after time, he was focusing and he was communicating with people, particularly the experts, right? They had closed hearts. They had decided in their mind, this man was crazy, he was a revolutionary, he was whatever, but he was not the Messiah. And so they were challenging him. They were often trying to trick him. They were often trying to put him to the test. And Jesus would answer in many times, well, haven't you read this? Don't you know that the law says this? Because they, in fact, did know the law. They did know the scripture, and yet they didn't understand it. So, for example, this first one in Matthew chapter 12, and he says, says, have not you read in this story, I'm not going to go into this story, but it's about the Sabbath. It's about people that are complaining that his disciples had taken some grain when they were walking through a grain field and eaten it, and it was on the Sabbath. And they're saying they violated basically the work harvest rule or whatever. And so Jesus explains, well, haven't you read? And he talks about how David um, had, had done some things that were contrary to the law, but they were basically allowed. And he teaches that man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for, for man. Sabbath was a rest that God gave as a provision to his people. And then he's really beginning the explanation that Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. And if you go into then the book of Hebrews, he explains how, how God provided a rest for the people, a rest from their efforts to be perfect as a way to reach God. Rest from your labors, your efforts to be good enough for God and accept the salvation of Jesus Christ. He is therefore our rest. He is our Sabbath. That was in the scripture, but they couldn't understand it. The next one, Matthew chapter 22. That's where they pose this hypothetical to him about, uh, well, if, if a man dies and, and then his wife goes and he's married to his younger brother and then the brother dies and she's married to the next one and she's married to the next one, which was basically a, 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 a tradition based on this principle called the kinsman redeemer so that, uh, you know, if you die, you, you have progeny, that the child... The next kinsman marries the, the wife and their first child then is considered uh, carrying on the lineage of the one who is deceased. And they say, well, if that happens, then when they go to heaven, whose wife is she? Because she's married to multiple brothers. And Jesus is, is criticizing them. You neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. And in, in, he explains how there's no, there's no marriage in heaven. And he explains some, some principles. But basically, they knew the scripture but they didn't know and understand it and didn't understand the power of God. Another one, John chapter 10. So in John chapter 10, I'm going to turn there briefly, verses 31 through 39. The Jews picked up, so, so, so Jesus is talking at this point, and he's saying, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, okay? And then in, in verse 31, he says, 
The Jew, they say, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus said, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For, for which of these are you going to stone me? And they answered, we're, it is not for good works that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God also. And then he goes on to explain more spiritual understanding. They could not accept the possibility that he was the Messiah. They had closed their hearts to it. They had hardened, uh, closed their minds and hardened their hearts. And so as a result, they, they would not let their hearts open up to spiritually understand the scriptures. And then in John chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, this is, he's speaking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is, is a man who ultimately becomes a believer, and he is considered one of the premier teachers in Israel. And yet, when Jesus tells him that you must be born again, he says, I don't understand how that could happen. I have to go back into the womb. How can a grown man do that? And Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? The common thread through all these is they had access to the Scriptures. Many of them were experts in the Scriptures. They were using them as a weapon to, uh, to combat Jesus, but they didn't understand what was behind them. Didn't, they didn't understand the heart of God, and they didn't understand the true meaning of the Scriptures. So keep in, get that mind in that context, right? That during the ministry of Jesus, many of the people that he spoke to did have access to the Scriptures. Now, during, after he had, has, had resurrected and ascended to heaven and his disciples were now carrying on and, and, and starting the church, the early Christian church, they were speaking to many people who had access to the doctrines of Christ because the disciples were providing them. So the book of Luke and the book of Acts were both written by the same man, a man named Luke who was a physician and who was a very good historian. And so at the introduction of Luke chapter 1, he says... Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, and then he goes on to say, I decided to do the same thing. So he's saying that at that time, many people are writing down what they experienced with Jesus. And we know of at least four of them, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we know that, and there were likely others that didn't make it into Scripture. Maybe they were much smaller and incomplete. The point is, they were telling the story of Jesus based on their life and experience with him. Luke goes on to say, when he writes Acts, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He's again writing this book for somebody named Theophilus. And then he goes on in the book of Acts to explain what happened in the early church amongst the disciples carrying on the ministry after Christ has, had ascended. So he is, he is providing the information, the scripture, the, the life of Christ to these people and believers. So then another example in Colossians. This is written by Paul. Paul, as a, as a leader who came to Christ after the resurrection, right? He is writing letters, and that's really what all these epistles in the, first, in the New Testament are. They're letters to the Corinthians, to the Romans, to the Ephesians, to the Galatians. There is a letter on teaching and doctrine and instruction from a leader, most of them are from Paul, but some are from others, to a particular group of people. And it's, the purpose of that letter is not for one person to have it and to hide it away. It's for the entire body. And look at what he says to do. It, read it to the entire body. 
When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And those are the... I, I was saying before that was the Spartans, but Lacedaemonians are the Spartans. So that's whoever the Laodiceans are. They're not the Spartans. But the point is, take my letter, read it to the entire church, and then I want you to exchange for uh, another church and their letter. Let them read your letter and you read their letter. He is promoting the proliferation of spiritual understanding through the scriptures. Okay? Well, the church went through a period of time when that was not as available. And that time was when um, you had the establishment of a worldwide Christian church under the auspices of the Catholic church. And over centuries, it began, began, began to be really controlled. And this doctrine of clergy and laity became as sacred as scripture. And so the, the people, often you didn't have the, the Bible except in Latin. Poor people are uneducated in Latin. And so they don't have the Bible available in the vernacular or the common tongue. They're relying then on a minister, a priest, somebody to translate and, and provide that instruction to them. You don't read the Bible, we'll read the Bible for you and tell you what it says. And then the Mass may be in Latin. And so what happened is, at, at various points, you had Martin Luther who said, we're not going to do it that way. And he was educated. He, he, he knew the Bible from, from uh, having been taught as a, as a priest. <clears throat> and then you had the Protestant Reformation that began in the 1500s and 1600s. So, for an example, John Wycliffe, he had a Bible translated into English from Latin, and it was in Middle English in the late 1300s, okay? And he says, it helpeth Christian men to study the gospel in that tongue in which they know Christ best, Christ's sentence. And so um, that Bible began circulating. There were later translations or additional editions of Wycliffe that were, uh, they found this interesting. There was a law passed in, by England in 1407, and it said, no more translations are allowed by these guys after this date. And so they kept making translations, but they would date them 1406. And they're like, hey, this is an old one, though. <laughs> I'm not breaking the law. So then the King James Bible comes along. It was fi finished in 1611. So what had happened in the meantime was uh, John Calvin had fled to Switzerland, and he's a, he's a Protestant, and he is generating what was called, the, they produced the Geneva Bible. And it was a translation from Greek and Hebrew, and it's being smuggled into Europe. Okay? Then King Henry VIII had rebelled from the Pope and all this stuff happened and the British went back and forth between Catholic and Anglican Church for a while until Elizabeth settled it and said, we're Anglican. So King James, who came after her, said, we have a problem here. Or at least his people came and told him he has a problem. The problem is we're starting to get the Bible in English, but we're concerned about the quality of the translation. We're concerned about the Puritans. They might be putting some stuff in there. We're concerned about Wycliffe and some of his issues. And so... And it was, it was Middle English. So they, they, took, they put together a large group of scholars and they produced the English language King James Bible in early modern English. In, and it was finished in 1611. So here's what happened. It was translated from the Greek and Hebrew original text. Some of these others were not translated from the original Greek and Hebrew. They were translated from the Latin which had been translated from the Greek and Hebrew. And so their concern was we're going to have copies of copies and and dual translations, and we might miss something. So this became the authoritative uh, King James, became the authoritative Bible for centuries. Well, what else was happening at this time? 
Well, we were starting to go to the, to the new world. Jamestown came in 1607. The Puritans came in 1620 to Massachusetts. We began spreading uh, around the world, and they're taking the King James Bible. The King James Bible with the modern, uh, the continual improvements in the printing press is becoming available. So for think about these people. In the 1200s, the 1300s, the 1400s who are being uh, told you cannot have an English language Bible. You cannot. I mean, it was against the law to have one, certainly to, much less to print it and distribute it. They are agitating. They want the Word of God. They want to know God. They don't want, an, they want the only intermediary between them and God to be Jesus Christ, not to be more layers of priests who want to you know, frankly, the various points the church wanted to keep them under control and keep getting money from them, okay? So they're agitating, they're seeking the Word of God. When this is now opened up to them, there's this explosion of uh, proliferation of knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you look at some revivals that happened after this period of time, they're fueled because now the Bible is accessible. People can read that Jesus loves you and died on the cross for your sins, and there's the, the grace, the redemption, the freedom, the excitement of God is now available to people in ways that it wasn't before. I put this up here. This is a, just a John 3.16 on the King James Version. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So in the, like, the Wycliffe Version, this is Middle English, not Modern English. For God loved so the world that he gave his only begotten son that each man that believeth in him perish not but have everlasting life. I don't know. The, the V and the U apparently were equivalent. So I'm, I'm much happier with the King James Version. People say, oh, it's hard to read. Well, try Wycliffe, you know. <laughs> so these barriers, they overcame these barriers to get the word of God. So what are our barriers to knowing the Scripture. It's not that we don't have the Bible, right? We've got the Bible. We've got oodles of Bibles. We've got a phone that's got 150 Bibles on it. Our barriers, I, you know, here's the three that I kind of focus on. The first one is really just a lack of priority and motivation. We're saving the world on Facebook, or we're binge-watching something new on, on Netflix, or we, we, uh, we just something else is more important. The other barrier is, I, I have a desire, but I'm overwhelmed. Where do I start? And the third one, and this is the one we're going to focus on a little bit more, is lack of spiritual understanding or lack of spiritual openness. Knowing, reading the Scripture and understanding the Scripture are two different things. So first of all, your first problem, you're not motivated. So you'll be motivated when you're in a spiritual battle and you haven't read the Bible. So this is a scene from Saving Private Ryan when they're... they're They've got to stop some German tanks, and they don't have anything big enough to stop German tanks. And so uh, Tom Hanks' character, Captain Miller, says, well, let's make a sticky bomb. And they're going, what's a sticky bomb? And he says, well, it's in the field manual. Didn't you read it? And they, they said, well, no, and we don't have one handy. So if, if you're running into a spiritual battle and you need Scripture, but you haven't bothered to read Scripture up to that point, it's a little late to try and gin up a spiritual sticky bomb. So... <laughs> Read the manual before you get to that point. But really, for if you're overwhelmed, I have the desire, but I'm struggling with where do I go. This is a um, this last couple slides or these several next couple slides are from a sermon I taught in August 2018 
about, it was called Rightly Dividing the Word, and it's, um, it's still available on the website if you want to go listen to it. And I will tell you what, at the beginning of this sermon, what I told everyone was, you need to know the Word because at some point, someone's going to stand up here and they're going to say something that's not correct. And you need to know. You're responsible for knowing the Word, not for what I told you. And I re-listened to that sermon last night, and I said some, something that was incorrect in that sermon. I'm like, oh my gosh. It was like it was this test and no one caught it and passed. So uh, read the Word. Don't just rely on me for what it says. But where do I begin? Well, I would say if you are a new believer, uh, start with Jesus. Start with the book of Matthew or the book of John and get to know Jesus. And then if you want to kind of dig into some, how does this whole salvation thing work? The book of Romans is, is where I would go every time. I would, as a new believer or as a person who's been there forever, it, it's a roadmap that explains in simple terms to your heart the, the God's plan for our life, for his salvation for our life. And then if you want to get into prayer and worship and say, how do, I, how do I praise God? I would go to Psalms. And I told the story that there was a point in my life when I was, I was very much struggling with uh, some things and I had always avoided Psalms because I thought it was boring. And I read Psalms and it taught me how to worship Him. It, it brought me into a place of worshiping God that I certainly wasn't going to get from reading the book of Numbers. And then dig into some human stories. There's so much drama. There's so much drama, especially in the Old Testament. Ruth, Esther, David, uh, Samson. Get in and, and see how they struggled in their life as to, to rely on God in the midst of great difficulty. And then follow your interests from there. So I would say there's a lot of tools out there to give you an overview of a book um, before you start to understand kind of how it's put together. Um, I would say get a partner, a friend, or a, a, a study buddy who has more experience than you are. Now, there's some different, there's groups you can join, and then definitely pray for understanding. And I'm going to hit that really hard on the next as we go here. So, here's my short summary of the Bible. The Bible, from beginning to end, is God's love letter to His people, and the central character for the entire Bible is Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament. The point of it is God trying to show his people that they can't be perfect on their own and to, to draw them to him. The, the law was not intended to make anyone perfect. It was intended to reveal to people they are not perfect and then to come to God for atonement, for forgiveness. And the, from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden onward, his plan points towards providing his only begotten son as our redeemer. Jesus is... The, center, the central character of the entire biblical story. And these are just a number of different references here. And then how do I continue? There, you can read the entire New Testament. If you want to see how that story ties together, what I would do is I would, if you want to really do a good study, I mean a deep study, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five, and then Luke, Matthew, and the book of Hebrews those together, and they, they basically explain how this all connects together. <clears throat> uh, I have a chain reference Bible that I recommend because it has, it's not just, I don't use the concordances in the back very much, uh, the, uh, you know, the dictionary, the Greek and the Hebrew, I'm just not that much of a scholar, I guess. But what it has is, it has 
a reference where if I'm looking at Matthew chapter 12, I can, it'll tell me where to look at the book of John or the book of Luke for a very similar thing that happened. It helps me understand how Scripture is connected. Okay? And then I'll skip that. So our third, let's talk about our third barrier, our third barrier to, to understanding Scripture, and that is lack of spiritual understanding. Does anyone recognize this? What's this from? Monty Python, right? So there's this ridiculous scene that I wanted to play, but I was worried we were going to be out of time. <clears throat> it is, these people think, the, the villagers think that this lady's a witch. And this is in the Middle Ages, right in that time when nobody had the Bible, right? Right then, there's a great amount of superstition and spiritual ignorance. These people think that this lady's a witch. In fact, they put the nose on her. And they bring, the, the local leader, ruler, is explained to them how to determine if she's a witch. And you... Uh, does she float in water like wood? Does she, she made of wood? What else floats in the water? A duck, duck does. So if she weighs the same as a duck, then she must be a witch. You know, this ridiculous farcical thing. Well, then what's worse is they put her in this massive scale and this duck is like this big and she ends up weighing the same as the duck. And she's saying it's rigged, but they burn her anyway. So <clears throat> the point is, it's ridiculous, right? There's no spiritual understanding here whatsoever. Yes, there are spiritual forces out there that battle against us, but you don't compare them to a duck to find them. The Bible explains how to discern spirits. But this shows, just as an example, the most absurd example of, of, of spiritual ignorance. Well, I suspect that there were times during the ministry of Jesus when he probably felt that the Pharisees or even his own disciples had that level of spiritual ignorance that he was dealing with. And why is that? Because we can know the Scriptures, but it requires the Spirit of God to help us understand them. It's a mystery. If you have a Bible and want to turn to the book of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, this, is, uh, this, this chapter is uh, really extraordinary. <clears throat> Paul, I'm going to read some at length here. It's not all up there on the board, but... 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is explaining the centrality of our faith is Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and resurrected. And then he explains how that is understood through faith, not through human understanding. Verse 6, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human understanding, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths, truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? 
but we have the mind of Christ. That is the mystery of the scripture and the mystery of God. That we can know the scripture, but not understand it unless our hearts are opened spiritually and we let the spirit instruct us, reveal these things, take the scales off of our eyes. So in the same way, we can know God, but we cannot fathom him, fathom him without a lifelong journey in the scripture being guided by the Holy Spirit, ultimately knowing him face to face in heaven. David said in Psalms 139, such knowledge is too wonderful to me, for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Paul said in Romans, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. And then this chapter, John 17, I would urge you to read this entire chapter. This is a very key point in the ministry of Jesus. This is what we call the high, Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's nearing the end of his ministry. He's praying to God, and he's praying to God to <clears throat> basically prepare to hand over his disciples and the church on earth from his hands, because he's leaving, into God's hands, and he's explaining how the Holy Spirit is going to be then basically leading and administering this church on earth. And in this point, he, he says specifically, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that have sent me. So the key here is that he is, he is both recognizing that, the, that his disciples know God the Father because they know him. They've, he says over and over again, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I do what the Father has, has shown me to do. I follow the will of the Father. But he's also saying that this, this cataclysmic thing that is about to happen, he's about to be crucified and then resurrected and then he's going to ascend and they're going to be left, which they were, like, uh-oh, he's gone for the second time. What do we do now? That he's saying what's going to build that church is knowledge of God. Not knowledge like head knowledge, but personal knowledge like knowing him. And like... Um, being guided in the Holy Spirit. So, so we have these neighbors who are uh, um, very fluent in Spanish and, and not so well in English, and I am uh, moderately fluent in English and very poor in Spanish. So we're having dinner with them the other day, and I'm just like putting this valiant effort. I'm going to make this work. And I'm going, through, I'm going through my Spanish as well as I can, and they're, you know, they're really trying to help me along. And but there's, I get to this one point, and I, and I remember a lot of Spanish. I just can't conjugate it very well. So there's two different words in Spanish for to know something. Saber, which is to know like, um, to know a fact. And conocer, which is like to be familiar with something. So if you see a person and you say, uh, I don't know that person. No conozco. No lo conozco, which means I don't know that person. But if you know them, it's lo conozco. I know that person versus knowing a fact. And that's kind of how it is here. We can know a fact. We can, we can saber the, uh, the Bible, but that doesn't mean we conocer that we know God. How close am I, Cassie? She's giving me the, eh. okay, good. All right, I'm good. That's kind of the difference here. We can know the facts, but it's not just know the facts as we need to know the person. That's the conocer that, that I would draw in this distinction in my head. And that's what, he's, that's what he's instructing us to do. So, 
here's the other challenge we have. We've got to get over ourselves. We've got to get ourselves out of the way for this to happen. My wife's teaching this uh, book, this series, um, based on this book, None Like Him by Jen Wilkin. This is a great study about 10 attributes of God that only God is and we can never be. He's infinite. He's incomprehensible. He's self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal, immutable, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, and sovereign. We can never be those things. No matter how sanctified we are, even when we're in heaven, we'll live eternally only by the will of God. But we can't be any of those other things. We can't be all-powerful. We can't be all-knowing. We can't be unchanging. We can't be uh, the ruler of all. But here are things that God does desire us to be and to grow more like Him. Holy, just, loving, good, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, wise, jealous for God's glory, not negative sinful jealousy, faithful, righteous, and truthful. A lot of those are fruits of the Spirit, right? We can become more like God in that, that list on the right-hand side, as you're looking at it, and through knowledge of the Scripture, through knowledge of God, and through the Holy Spirit working in our life. Not knowledge of the Scripture, understanding of the Scripture. Our problem is we often confuse those two lists, right? We think, tell you what, God, we aren't going to worry about being holy, but we are going to be in charge of our life. So, out of the way, please. So, that becomes this struggle that we often have. My wife believes in this uh, ridiculous pseudo-scientific, maybe you've heard of it, uh, made-up thing, personality test called Enneagram. Anyone ever heard of it? So she's trying to get me to take this Enneagram test, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing that. I don't believe in that stuff. And uh, she says, well, how do you, you have to know what number you are. I'm like, I don't need to know what number I am. I am who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm my personality. I'm not going to be defined by a number. I refuse to take a test and be defined by that number. And she says, well, you're an eight. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> That's the person who won't take the test. And I'm like, well, I know enough to know you're not supposed to diagnose someone else. So... Well, she says, if you don't do it, I have no choice. So, as an eight, hypothetically, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy that wants to be sovereign, omnipotent, over here, on my life, right? I don't want to, like, leave, let God be in charge. Anyone else? Any other eights out there? Anybody? So, that's our struggle. Our struggle is to grow into that point of understanding the Scripture, We have to surrender our command of our own um, being. We have to surrender to the whole instruction of the Holy Spirit. And to grow in the knowledge of God, to grow more like God, we we have to rest from our labors. Jesus is the Sabbath, right? His salvation makes us whole. His salvation gives us the entryway to draw closer to God as a child of God. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, we then become more like God, not because we work, because we stop working and we let Him work for us. And that's how we also come to that understanding of the Scripture. So we have to surrender our time and priorities, stop finding everything else in the world that's more important to do than to know the Scripture. This doesn't work if you haven't read the manual. You, get, you can't make a sticky bomb if you haven't read the manual. You've got to dig in and know the word. Thy word, O Lord, have I hid my heart that I may not sin against you. And then we have to surrender 
our worldview because he says the wisdom of the age doesn't understand uh, God, right? It's folly. The world thinks this is folly. We all know that, right? The world thinks we're a bunch of kooks. And then third, we have to decide we are not the significant, all-powerful being in this relationship. God is. And letting that down is what allows him, I'll be sovereign, I'll be infinite, I'll be perfect, I'll be all-powerful, Corey, and I'll focus on you, making you more holy, making you more humble, making you more understanding of my ways. Don't get those two lists backwards, as I often try to do, because I'm an eight, whatever that means. So, that's a lifelong journey, by the way. But we've got the rest of our life, don't we? And what it, why this matters isn't just because it, it, does, it does make a difference, right? It makes a difference if we're growing daily in discovery of God, we're excited, we're digging, we're continuing to draw closer to Him because He's making this spirit alive in us rather than being bored and being like, oh, I mean, I've, I fell asleep reading numbers three times. That, that's, you know, not the approach. But what the reason it also matters is because someday we'll be, we will be face-to-face with the Lord. And, you know, we'll understand things perfectly at that point, or at least at some point, because he says, he says he'll re- reveal his, his glory to us for eternity. But why it matters is because when we stand there, we want there to be this great big long line of people behind us that are there because we brought them. Because we understood the life and the grace of Jesus Christ. And we shared that with this great big crowd of people and their lives were transformed and they get to be there with that privilege of knowing God. That's how we're going to kick this thing into action.